listening to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, we get perspective on the protest movement in Hong Kong from Edward Hon Seng Wong, a migrant justice and labor organizer based in Toronto, part of the Hong Kong diaspora. He authored the article Insurgent Politics Against the Backdrop of Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. In this feature interview, Edward provides background to the current protest movement, as well as analysis of the dynamics of the insurgent politics and contested terrain of the struggle within the immense and courageous protests. We also get a sense of the politics of the Hong Kong and Chinese diaspora in relation to the Hong Kong insurgency. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. We're in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Let's go to that interview with Edward Han Seng Wong right now. I'm speaking with Edward Hansing Wong. Edward is based in Toronto, where he, he's a migrant justice and labor organizer. Uh, Edward is part of the Hong Kong diaspora, has, is from Hong Kong, has lived there, uh, is organizing now in Toronto, but has been following closely the protest movement in Hong Kong and is here to talk about it. Edward, welcome to No Borders Media. Thank you so much for having me. Edward, uh, I want to draw our listeners' attention to uh, a post that you made, uh, an article that you wrote called Insurgent Politics Against the Backdrop of Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. This was posted on August 30th on the Upping the Anti blog. Folks can check out the show description and get a link to that article. But let's start by grounding ourselves. What, what the hell is going on right now in, in, in Hong Kong that has provoked these incredible protests of, of hundreds of thousands, often millions, amazing police violence, a resilience, because this has been happening for weeks and weeks and weeks. What exactly is, is going on? Before we get into understanding the, the politics of it, what's been happening over the last few weeks in Hong Kong with this protest movement? Absolutely. I mean, well, I think um, to really understand it, we could start the story way before, but the immediate cause was that... Um, so in last year, there was a really unfortunate case of a Hong Konger who had traveled to Taiwan with his uh, girlfriend and um, is alleged to have murdered her. Um, after that happened, he had fled back to Hong Kong. Uh, but as Hong Kong um, does not have any extradition agreements with, uh, with Taiwan, um, he's currently uh, only in jail for fraud. Um, but but um, you know, Hong Kong is unable to send him back to Taiwan uh, to address the murder charges. Uh, ultimately, though, the understanding is that the Hong Kong government has kind of opportunistically uh, uh, latched on to this this this, uh, this this really sad case uh, as an opportunity to push forward an extradition bill, um, so supposedly to allow for his extradition to Taiwan. Uh, but this agreement would also uh, facilitate extradition uh, to China, uh, to mainland China, and a lot of activists, labor organizers. Um, are, are, are very concerned about the implications. I mean, uh, obviously, even without this extradition bill, there's been cases uh, such as with Hong Kong booksellers who uh, have been nabbed and, and, and brought to China um, to go through kang- kangaroo trials and, and are, are in jail right now. Uh, so it happens anyways, but um, there's a fear that this will just uh, further facilitate that process um, 
and 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 so it sparked massive protests. We've had two protests uh, numbering almost two million people. We've had a day of general strike. There's been uh, daily confrontations with the police, um, and uh, sadly, also we've had uh, almost a dozen people uh, take their own lives in protest. So it's a very desperate situation, uh, initially sparked by this extradition bill, but uh, it's since morphed into broader demands. So in fact, five demands. So um, opposition to the extradition bill, uh, demand for independent inquiry into police violence, a uh, recategorization of the June 12 protests. Uh, so the government has designated it a riot. Um, and the implication of that is that uh, anyone arrested for participating in this uh, could face up to 10 years uh, in jail. So it's a very uh, serious designation and, and people uh, want that corrected. Uh, amnesty for those arrested and, and finally uh, demand for universal suffrage. So, I mean, th these are the immediate issues, but we also need to look at kind of the broader context um, where there's a really a lot of dissatisfaction at the lack of uh, democratic reforms in, in Hong Kong. So right now, our chief executive, which kind of equivalent to a president, is uh, selected by uh, um, an election committee uh, made up of 1,200 people. Most of these are appointed by Beijing or uh, selected by a small circle of people. Um, and from you know more critical left perspective, there's a recognition that a lot of the, um, it's mainly corporations that are wholly responsible or partly responsible for electing um, almost half of this committee members. Uh, we have a similar situation here with our, uh, with the legisla uh, legislative body, the Legislative Council, where, uh, you know, we, we have something called the functional constituency seat. So almost half our seats are dedicated to um, various corporate sectors. So we have a banking seat, a textile seat, and who gets the vote is, uh, is, is often determined by private organizations like the Hong Kong Chamber of Commerce, um, the Federation of Hong Kong Industries, uh, where once again, um, corporations actually get to make the votes and uh, have, have um, strong influence over the policies and, and, and the system in place here in Hong Kong. Uh, these, kind of entrenched corporate interests have, have, have led to Hong Kong being the highest uh, in income inequality in the world. We're dealing with a severe uh, housing crisis. Uh, some listeners might have heard of the cage homes we have in Hong Kong. Um, so all of these economic uh, issues exacerbated by um, the, uh, the, the political system we have in, in Hong Kong um, has, has led to Hong Kong becoming a bit of a powder keg. I mean, this isn't actually the first time we've seen uh, mass protests. I mean, we, we almost see this every couple of years from uh, opposition to Article 23, the anti-sedition bill back in 2001, uh, to Occupy, uh, the Occupy movement a couple of years back. So um, th there's really deep issues that, 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 that motivate these uh, protests, but it's kind of been distilled into uh, these the, five demands I mentioned earlier. I want to stay a bit with the protest movement before getting into a, into a bigger analysis, an analysis you've already begun to offer, of course, because these five demands, uh, as you've just mentioned, come together with many, uh, like, you know, a backdrop of deeper social 
and economic injustices. But to go back to the protest movement, beyond like having millions in the streets, talk more about some specifics about what people have been doing. There's been non-cooperation. People haven't been simply waiting to get permission to protest. Far from it. There have been strikes. There's been disruption of the airport. Often we're seeing on social media, of course, some of the creativity of protesters in dealing with with police violence or just getting their message across. So speak a bit more about about the the depth of of this protest movement, ranging from the mass protests in the streets, which bring out a lot of people, to creative forms of of civil disobedience and direct action, and and an emphasis on 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 economic and political disruption. Absolutely, and and I think this is what makes you know I've mentioned there's been mass uh, mass mobilization in the past, but uh, what th- there's really been a shift with this round of protests in terms of um, like you said, there, there's been a lot more creativity in 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 and and uh, tolerance for for uh, diversity of tactics. Um, I, I think part of it was around dissatisfaction that the previous focus on 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 simply nonviolent uh, mass protests, which still have an important role, but but there's this feeling that those previous tactics alone uh, have been insufficient at, 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 at addressing the demands of, of, of Hong Kong people. Um, so uh, one interesting element and, and, and to really show how uh, you know, the grassroots appeal of this, this current fight has been um, you know, the, the number of spontaneous actions that have happened at the neighborhood level. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, an example that kind of sticks out in my head because I was just watching the video was uh, when Keith Fong, who was the president of the Baptist University Student Union, he was arrested by uh, plainclothes police officers uh, when he was purchasing um, uh, laser pointers um, at Abu Gai and. When that happened, um, quickly bystanders uh, and residents from the area flooded to the scene to uh, surround the police and, and, and try to offer help to Keith. Um, uh, ultimately, the police were able to get him to the police station, but the crowd uh, surrounded the police station and um, you know, it, it took another round of tear gassing before uh, the crowd dissipated. Um, we're seeing uh, rallies at, at local MTR stations, at, at building complexes. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of protests at, at workplaces where, you know, uh, another prominent example is that we've seen multiple simultaneous rallies at almost uh, 20 hospitals um, where uh, healthcare providers are, are concerned at the police targeting of uh, medics uh, at the protest, but, but also just the um, the, the brutality that, that, that uh, healthcare providers are seeing with people coming to the hospital. Um, a lot of the actions have also been sparked by uh, police violence against colleagues. So, you know, the Disney Performers Union threatened to go on strike after one of its members uh, was assaulted and arrested. There's been protests by social workers, teachers, uh, subway and bus drivers. Um, and, and right now we're seeing a lot of... Uh, organizing at the middle and high school level where, 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 where students are protesting at their schools. Um, and uh, so the, the movement's really widespread. Um, we're, uh, th- but all this, like if we look at the, at the action at a closer level, now, I, you know, I need to admit, I, I'm, I'm here in Canada, so I, I'm not necessarily at the ground. A lot of this is from uh, conversations I've had with people and, 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 and reading observations from, from Hong Kong. But uh, it's really inspiring to see there's a great deal of uh, mutual aid being practiced um, 
at almost every protest, there's been supply stations set up so uh, to distribute uh, equipment to 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 protesters. Uh, residents have provided food, um, and uh, you know we we often see single-use uh, subway tickets uh, left at the subway stations. The concern being that if we use uh, our equivalent of the Presto card, the police is using that to kind of track the movement of protesters. So. Um, uh, you know, they, there's also T-shirts left at, at the uh, subway station so that protesters can change out of their black shirts to, again, avoid detection. So what we're seeing uh, a lot of creative attempts at, at protecting frontline protesters. And uh, again, it's not frontline, just frontline protesters involved in this, but we're, we're seeing the broader community uh, support in this struggle. Um, but perhaps the most important, I, I think, element of how these protests are being organized uh, right now and what uh, leaves me a little hope, more hope for, for, for uh, maybe a more progressive uh, radical politics to emerge out of this is the very organic form of uh, organizing, decentralized form of organizing we're seeing uh, on the ground. Um, it, it's actually partly out of practicality, like what we saw back in 2014, with the last mass protest, uh, you know, the so-called umbrella revolution and the Occupy movement, um, was that many of the organizers then were arrested. And so the thinking is that if we decentralize the protest, then uh, it would be much harder for the police to target specific individuals and to um, kind of end, end the resistance uh, obviously, it hasn't stopped the police from arresting people. We've had over a thousand arrested, but uh, it, it's been uh, police repression has been very ineffective at, at, at stopping uh, the actions being taken. Um, so uh, nowadays, we see a lot of decisions are made on a platform called Li Dung or L I H K, um, which is kind of like a Reddit-like website, which allows uh, users to uh, discuss. Uh, protest strategies and, and vote on how to proceed. Uh, there's also anonymity with that, um, um, you know, unlike Facebook where, where most people have their real names and uh, um, where there was some criticism at, that, that Facebook wasn't a very effective platform at organizing, um, you know, like at the previous protests. Um, so, you know, I'll, the, the other big major principle that's part of this decentralized organizing is uh, something called Moldai uh, Toy, which is an anti-big stage, which, um, uh, again, owing to the practical concerns with the previous arrest, there, there's really been an intentional distrust of uh, established political organizations um, and, uh, and, and leadership. So um, it's interesting when some of the organizers that um, were uh, imprisoned from the previous protests, the most famous one, of course, is Joshua Wong. Uh, when they were released, there was actually not much fanfare. I think there's respect that these individuals had, uh, had, had sacrificed themselves, but there was a feeling that we have to move beyond this kind of uh, um, putting people on a pedestal. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so there, there's a very intentional attempt to emphasize the, the, the mass and decentralized nature of these protests. Edward, I, I want to get more a bit, a bit later in this interview about, about the grassroots, mutual aid, participatory democracy side of things. But before that, as you point out in your article, and again, to remind our listeners, there's an article call, that Edward has written called Insurgent Politics Against the Backdrop of Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. 
Um, look for the link on the on the show description here. In your article, you talk about how the coverage and the framing and of these protests have been grossly oversimplified, both in China and the West and, and elsewhere as well. If I could just summarize, you know, on one level, these these protests are portrayed as um, basically a form of pro-Western uh, colonialism, depending on whether you're pro-West or what have you, uh, and anti-China. Uh, others will will portray it as uh, an example of of of, of sort of a final Cold War uh, anti-communist uh, failure of the Chinese regime. There are those that take a hands-off approach and often a hostile approach to the protesters, even from the left, because their point of view is to say that uh, China, uh, with the history of colonialism, what have you, has the right to uh, reclaim Hong Kong and the people protesting are claiming rights that are a Western thing and not something that's Chinese. So can you, and you explore this in your article a bit, but can you talk to our listeners about wh- what are the problems with some of these op- oversimplifications and how are we to understand um, uh, the the actual narrative of, of, of what's happening politically in Hong Kong in the context of these protests? And I, I think that speaks to why it's so challenging being uh, a leftist Hong Konger and, uh, and an anti-authoritarian leftist, uh, you know, ch- Chinese organizers in general, in that it really feels like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place where, um, as you said, a lot of our, um, a lot of leftists here in the West are um, taking on some, you know, tankyism where uh, they, they, they are trying to understand very complex situations that are happening um, on the ground in Hong Kong through, uh, you know, a geopolitical lens where everything is simply about, um, you know, U.S. And, uh, and, and U.S. imperialism. Certainly a very American imperialism is, a, you know, something we need to staunchly oppose, but it, it's problematic just imposing that narrative and presuming that anything, um, any challenge to U.S. imperialism uh, or sorry, any opposition to the U.S. say through the Chinese state is, is necessarily worth um, defending. It's also very problematic in that I think it sees uh, Hong Kong people as mindless drones mobilized by the CIA. Um, but I think if we're willing to believe that CIA can mobilize the numbers we've seen on the ground right now, 2 million people at a march, for example, it's given the CIA way too much credit and Hong Kong people way too little. I think uh, a lot of times the focus has been on, on, on very superficial elements uh, where, you know, we see photos of uh, 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 Hong Kong protesters waving, say, American flags. Um, like, I, I think it's important to recognize this is actually a small minority of uh, protesters. I'm not going to pretend there aren't Hong Kongers that, that you know, w- uh, you know, do a similar geopolitical calculus where they feel like, oh, the uh, only way we could uh, challenge uh, Chinese hegemony in Hong Kong is through some appeal to, uh, you know, Western intervention. I mean, that does exist, but I, I don't think that's reflective of the the movement. And um, there's been many efforts to confront this uh, by other protesters. Uh, and uh, besides, I mean, again, just trying to recognize the nuance of, of, of navigating between two uh, superpowers. I, I think, uh, I can't remember their name, but a Hong Kong professor was claiming that, um, uh, you know, a lot of it, too, is we, we can't look too much into the symbolism because so much of it is 
just used as a kind of way to piss off the government, knowing that 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 these uh, Western symbols instigates a certain response. Um, so I, again, I, I think as Hong Kong activists, I think it's important to confront, and we've, we've seen some of this happen. But um, as observers from the West, I think we need to apply a lot more nuance in 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 what's going on and um I, I think part of the problem with um with just seeing everything as 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 this uh black and white US versus um China issue is that it also um kind of erases the role and complicity of the West in in, in what's going on in, in China. You know, we uh, see little, very little discussion of the fact that a company linked to Blackwater is currently uh, helping China with training camps in 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 Xinjiang used against the Uyghur people. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot of surveillance technology and and weapons that are supplied to Hong Kong police uh, that were provided by 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 Western companies, um, and, and also this kind of strange framing of Hong Kong people as as motivated by. A colonial mindset also erases the fact that the current Hong Kong government and power structure is very much a vestige of uh, British colonialism. So, you know, we've talked a lot about Carrie Lam, the current chief executive. Well, she was a long-standing uh, British civil servant. Uh, one of the former chief executives, Donald Zhang, was even knighted uh, before the handover. Uh, many of the high-ranking police officers currently coordinating the uh, police violence are are white British officers that stayed stayed um, on the force after the handover, and of course a lot of the uh, tycoons that that um, have so much influence over Hong Kong made their money under British rule and still, um, you know that that influence hasn't changed since uh, since since the handover uh, with, with China coming in. So um, I think it's very important that, you know, what, one thing Western leftists can do is to scrutinize the complicity of the West. And uh, that serves two important objectives. I think it challenges the appropriation from right-wingers, which is uh, very real. I mean, we've seen Steve Bannon, I think, wants, uh, wants, wants Hong Kong protesters to get a Nobel Prize. I mean, it, it's alarming, actually, but and it's something that, again, Hong Kong protesters and, and, and leftists here need to challenge. Um, but this kind of emphasis on the com- complicity of the West, I think, can also demonstrate to Hong Kongers the inadequacies and problematic tactic of appealing to Western governments um, while demonstrating... Uh, solidarity from the left. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of talked about like the the role of the West, but I, I think we need to also look at the movement itself. You know, when I say we got to move away from the oversimplification, like ultimately the movement is still very in Kuwait. There, there, there isn't necessarily beyond those five demands a very clear political articulation. Um, you know, we, we have problematic elements like, uh, you know, far-right nativist elements that, that, that frame the, all these economic issues I talked about earlier as an issue of, uh, you know, mainland Chinese people, especially mainland Chinese workers. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and again, that's a really problematic, uh, uh, problematic ideas that, 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 that are, are, that exist and, and, and need to be challenged. But um, 
But most, the vast majority of, of, of the movement right now is newcomers to politics and people fighting desperately for survival. And the, this type of uh, political action has, I think, created an opening for more radical left-wing uh, alternatives um, uh, beyond just you know trade union movement and the social democratic uh, party politics we have. Um, people are are every day being politicized on the streets in, in the daily confrontation with the police. Um, uh, there's a great piece, um, uh, you know, that, that, that talks about abolitionist politics where um, what we're seeing on the ground now that, 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 um, uh, you know, people are actually even calling for the abolitionist uh, abolition of, of, of the pol- uh, Hong Kong police. Now, I, I don't know how serious people are, but the, the narratives are, are there and, um, there's a growing recognition that there needs to be a radical change in how how society operates. Um, you know, there, there's also been just more critical engagement in general we're seeing where uh, people are criticizing anti-mainland racism and criticizing the lack of economic analysis. So I, I think my hope is that um, that that the left can critically engage with with these possibilities that, that are happening in Hong Kong. I mean, we don't need to pretend that there isn't uh, any problematic right-wing elements. They exist. But uh, I think there needs to be a recognition that it, it is a mass movement with, with, with grassroots appeal. It's people desperately fighting for, for survival, and um, uh, they deserve our critical engagement and support. It, um, it strikes me that just like the the recent Yellow Vest movement in in France or the Occupy movements worldwide in, in 2011. Uh, this is contested terrain, and there are all kinds of elements. But if the left is to absent itself from any sort of engagement because of you know, the fear that there's a few people that fly American flags or that there's people from all over the political spectrum attempting to co-opt things, that that's a strategy of defeat. And, you know, to, to sort of reveal my own bias, that's exactly why I'm talking to you right now, so that we can actually have a progressive left engagement with what's happening, because clearly, ultimately, there's an incredible steadfastness and courage by people who are fighting for their survival on the streets of Hong Kong, beyond all this uh, uh, caricatured framing of what exactly is happening. So that's my little that's my little piece, I guess. Sorry, I needed to vent there, because it really gets to me that um, that there's a huge segment of the left that's absenting itself from reckoning with what's happening. They're just trying to understand it and and debating. Even you know, like movements are messy. That's just the nature of of, of transformative social movements. And you speak in your article, and I want to, I want you to talk more about this about the transformative potential of what's happening, and also the aspects of that movement that are progressive on a wide scale um, in terms of mutual aid, in terms of participatory democracy, in terms of direct action, civil disobedience used you know, in, in, um, in leftist progressive ways or by those elements. So can you talk about, talk about that, that side of things, including what seems to be an emerging um, anti-capitalism by, by many of the protesters? Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, yeah, that, that's why I'm just thinking back to some some comments by, by certain left wingers about how uh, oh anarchists are just seeing that there's this protest aesthetic in Hong Kong and 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 that's why they're supporting a Hong Kong protest. But once again, that that that, that that's just ridiculous in terms of what's happening on the ground. You know, we, we've already talked about um, 
you know, the, the, the mutual aid practices and participatory dem- democracy. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that's like a prefigurative politics. People are, 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 are thinking through, I think, how that might uh, translate in terms of day to day beyond, you know, social movements. Um, the, I, I think I'll, I also have to be honest, though. I mean, I, I think people, we, we see elements of, 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 of leftist interventions. Like um, one of the exciting thing is that well, the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of photos of uh, graffiti that there's one that says like, fuck China, but fuck the West too. Um, there, there's uh, others linking the government to neoliberal capitalism. So, uh, uh, you know, elements exist. I think speaking from here, I, I, I'm, I'm uncertain how widespread that is yet. Uh, but ultimately, my, my hope is still, once again, that this movement has created an opening for, uh, for the development of a, a radical left in Hong Kong. It's just been such a challenge, I think, because I, I think what we know of as a radical left in, in the West um, uh, barely exists in Hong Kong, largely because of um, the uh, the role of, of of China and the Chinese Communist Party, where I think people presume again that uh, that that's what left is the authoritarian left, and uh, uh, you know, it, and, and politics is very much framed in that way. Uh, what again the current fight hopefully allows then is uh, you know creation of a third way that rejects uh, authoritarianism. Um, uh, but also supports uh, leftist values of, uh, of, of, of economic uh, racial equity and, and, and uh, addressing the substantive uh, problems we have in society. So, I, yeah, it's, I, I think others have actually said that I've been too optimistic uh, uh, at how I talk about the left in Hong Kong. Um, but I, I think in, in full honesty, I, I think that's where we're standing right now, an opportunity and uh uh, you know, but but like you said, if we if the left ends up surrendering it and 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 and, um, and and subscribing to a defeatism, then then we really lose this to the right. Edward, I want to talk a bit about the dynamics in the diaspora. There's a huge Hong Kong diaspora um, in in Vancouver in the Vancouver area and in the Greater Toronto area. So I, I want you to talk about that a bit. What what we have heard are, of course, protests by people supporting the prote- uh, supporting the Hong Kong protest movement and the five demands and denouncing police brutality. But there's also been mobilizing, it seems, through through the Chinese consulate. But I, I don't have any facts to back that up. But it just seems <laughs> that way. Um, that but but sometimes quite violent or or the threat of violence being used yeah. against yeah. people manifesting in diaspora. And of course. Just as any society is contested and the protest movement is contested, the, there's, there's, there's contradictions within diaspora itself and difficulties in organizing. So can you talk about, about that a bit? Because, you know, Hong Kong is far away, I guess, but it's not far away when we consider the significant parts of the diaspora that live in, in, in uh, Canada and other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, the, we have the largest uh, Hong Kong diaspora in the world, actually. There's uh, over 300,000 uh, Hong Kongers living in, in Canada. Um, it's definitely a very tricky situation right now. I mean, um, the uh, like even, even before, you know, this current struggle with Hong Kong, obviously, there's been a targeting of Tibetan and Uyghur activists. Um, I... 
I meant to, but I forgot to talk a bit uh, about that too, because I, I think in a lot of ways, the situation there with, uh, with, with ethnic minorities up in China, they're facing a lot bigger issues and a lot more violence than Hong Kongers. I mean, obviously it doesn't diminish the Hong Konger fight, but um, I just wanted to make have that recognized. So um, it's scary right now when we see Hong Kong activists being targeted here. There's been uh, graffiti left at the home of uh, one uh, a Hong Kong activist, and we're seeing a lot of confrontations. So, but the kind of contradictory and 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 trickiness around diasporic politics, I think, case in point is uh, is at a the, the protest that was held in Toronto at OD Hall. Uh, about a month ago, where we saw, you know, um, a large group of Hong Kong protesters, but also a equally larger, if not larger, group of um, of, of pro-China protesters. Um, in terms of uh, the Hong Kong diaspora itself, I think, and especially a lot of these protest organizers, they are unfortunately, I think, dominated by. Um, more liberals, so th- there's no hesitation to wave Canadian flags, sing the Canadian anthem, and oddly enough, even thank the police, even though at that same protest, uh, uh, Hong Kong activists were pushed to the ground and, and kind of the general mismanagement of the rally by, by the police pushing everyone towards the uh, building, which almost led to our encirclement by the counter-protests. I mean, it's <laughs> people still aren't connecting the dots at, at the fact that some of our uh, that that the struggles we have against police violence in Hong Kong are are very much the same struggles we have here in in Canada against Canadian police, um, so uh, you know so I, I think the Hong Kong community here, um, you know it it still you know reflects a kind of problematic politics, but uh, in in their attempts to kind of support and connect the struggles back home. Uh, that I, I think uh, needs to be reckoned with and addressed. Uh, on the other side of the counter-protesters, we saw a lot of Chinese flag-waving, hyper-nationalists, um, and a sizable block of that group was really wealthy youngsters that were wearing Gucci shoes. They had um, you know, really expensive sports cars, circled the rally, uh, at a couple points, or even waving money at, at Hong Kong protesters and 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 saying Hong Kong protesters were poor. Um, now, I wish I could simply boil this down to some in, in terms of ch- Chinese nationalists as some sort of class division where all Chinese nationalists were simply children of uh, government officials who were hiding their money in the West. Um, but the troubling thing is, I, I think we. As, as organizers in the Chinese community, I think we see this type of nationalism um, go across class lines, like especially in even working class social media groups, like what we're seeing these ideas. And uh, I mean, you, you alluded to the embassy's role. I mean, I I don't think anyone has any concrete evidence. And um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they played a major role. It's just Again, we're wading into tricky territory given, um, I think, Western discourses of fifth column and and uh, and like anti-Chinese racism here in Canada in general. So, uh, which again just speaks to the difficulties in in, in understanding and engaging with um, Chinese diaspor- diasporic politics here. Um, that said, I think uh, despite you know wh- whether it's the liberalism of, of, of Hong Kong protesters or or this hyper nationalism we're also seeing, 
Um, I think there's also been, you know, a, a lot of opportunities that I think we can credit the movement for uh, in terms of uh, diasporic leftists that are connecting with each other. Um, uh, you know, I, I, the, I, I think there's optimism in that, you know, we're seeing a lot more uh, literature and analysis from, 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 from left, leftist diaspora from across this continent and in Europe, uh, incorporating what we've learned from ongoing histories of struggle against colonialism, against capitalism, uh, in our adopted homes and uh, applying it back to the situation in Hong Kong. Um, ultimately, the hope is that the struggles can allow us to reimagine an alternative uh, beyond um, nation states and, and capitalism. Um, and and the, I think the struggles in Hong Kong are, are allowing us to do that. Edward, I want to I stay with this um, diaspora issue for a second. And because you've alluded to it that, you know, like globbed on to... The, the dichotomy between those who are Chinese nationalists, if we can use that term, and those who are supporting the Hong Kong protest movement. Globbed onto that is, you know, elements of the yellow peril uh, here in North America that plays out every once in a while, the, whether, uh, you know, it's the racism of, of the past or the present even, but, you know, uh, blaming the housing markets and the overpricing of them in Vancouver and in Toronto on Chinese. Here in Quebec, there was a whole concocted controversy about Chinese buying up land, farmland in, in, in various parts of Quebec uh, with China as a, an emerging, we keep on talking about an emerging superpower, but with China as a superpower, there's all kinds of caricatures of what that means. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we need to be able to mobilize and organize and critique the Chinese state um, and yeah. distinguish that from Chinese. And of course, when it comes to racists, they don't really see any distinction between mainland Chinese yeah. and Taiwanese and Hong Kong and people in the diaspora. And Hong Kong is, is portrayed as a rich place, but as you've already pointed out, there's stark class divisions there. It's a, it's a microcosm of a class struggle in terms of housing, in terms of work, and the rest of it. So I'm going to ask you kind of a big question, but it's like, how do we, how do we navigate those, those waters living here in North America, like not playing in to the yellow peril idea and this idea that everything that China does or everything that's, that has China linked to it is somehow evil or wrong or is part of some sort of, um, uh, some sort of effort to take over the world or to inundate us with, with Chinese. These are all tropes, by the way, that have played out for hundreds of years in North America in different ways. So they're just playing mm-hmm. out in different ways now. So how do we, how do we navigate those waters with, with these Hong Kong protests in the ba- as a backdrop because they play out in so many other different ways, whether it's uh, defending the rights of Uyghur or Tibetans uh, mm-hmm. yeah. versus the Chinese state, but at the same time uh, not having the far right and even right-wing elements in Canadian society blame gentrification on, on Chinese migrants. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a million-dollar question. I, it's, it's, I wish I had the answer. It's, it's, that's why it's such a challenge organizing um, in the community, I think uh, you know, especially with these Hong Kong issues or Tibet issues and so forth. I, I, in fact, I'm I'm seeing probably a lot of organizers that even if they're sympathetic with those struggles in in China, uh, might be reluctant to bring it up for fears of alienating uh, some of the people we're organizing with. Um, I, so it's a big challenge, but I think the important thing is that. The engagement work with Chinese workers here in Canada needs to continue. Um, uh, I, I think 
you know, in, in my other article with uh, Justin and Veronica on, on Briar Patch, we, we, we talk about how the left in general has, has, has disengaged from the Chinese community, um, internalizing a lot of the uh, racist yellow peril ideas you, you mentioned and uh, this, this notion of inherent, how Chinese people here are inherently conservative, inherently right wing. Um, without recognizing the the stark class divisions in the community here and uh, the precarity that Chinese workers here face, um, like it's really hard to answer that question. But so all I have is that you know we need to recognize uh, the, the the class issue the the issues faced by Chinese workers here, begin that engagement, build those relationships, um, and and and. At the same time, not hesitate to uh, to 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 address uh, the issues with the Chinese state. So ultimately, this is a very important question, but I I, I it's a question I can't really answer. I think it, it needs to be uh, you know Chinese activists here and Hong Kong activists here need to be talking with each other to 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 recognize these contradictions and and to actually address this issues and and come up with a way to approach it uh, i think one thing i do know is we need to engage with this uh, these issues whether it's uh, uh the politics back home or the politics with the diaspora uh if we are to uh really further um uh, our goals as as leftists edward hansing wong living in toronto uh, originally from Hong Kong, part of the diaspora in Toronto, a migrant justice and labor organizer. Thank you so much for offering your insights uh, here on No Borders Media. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed my time here. You were just listening to a No Borders Media audio dispatch featuring an interview with Edward Hansing Wong, providing perspective on the Hong Kong protest movement. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggle of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. We end this episode with the Hong Kong anti-capitalist working class anthem, Half a Caddy, Eight Tales, written and sung by Canton pop legend Sam Huey. Oh,